Beloved, look up and hear God's calling us to worship. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. For he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. I'd love to look with you this morning in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. So if you have a copy of the scriptures and want to turn there, that'd be great. Otherwise, the words should be on the screen, and they're also printed in the bulletin. I'm going to read the first 10 verses of Matthew, chapter 5. As you're turning there or getting situated, whatever it is, remember that this summer we are working our way through the Sermon on the Mount which is covered in Matthew's gospel in chapters 5 through 7. So this summer we're going to be thinking about those chapters together. We're not going to cover every little verse and every detail in the Sermon on the Mount, but we're going to spend the summer months thinking through this sermon from Jesus together. And remember, as we think about the Sermon on the Mount, it is often our default that we hear the teaching of Jesus and we think of it as a checklist. So when I read to you these verses, 1 through 10, of, of Matthew chapter 5, you might immediately just go to the reality of this is just a checklist of what it means for me to be a good person, or this is a checklist of how uh, I can uh, get acceptance by God, or these are things that I should do so that God would, um, would accept me more, or how I can keep my relationship with God. We just have this default mode of thinking about what God says through that lens. Just tell me what to do, God, and I'm going to do it. And then you'll be happy with me and everything will be good. That's why many of us have heard some of the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount. You know, we should be salt and light, uh, the golden rule, and on and on. And we think, well, I just need to do unto others as, they, as I would have them do under me. Or I just really need to focus on being salt and light where I am and, and completely disconnect that truth from the good news of Jesus. So from the outset, this is why we started last week at the end of Jesus' message, the last section of chapter 7 of Matthew's gospel, because it's in that section that we find out that Jesus is really going after the foundation of our lives. And he does that through telling us about two houses. They look very, very similar. And yet, because the winds and the rain and the storm always comes, it's inevitable that storms will come in our lives. Those storms will expose what's really underneath. See, this is why Jesus is saying to us that there is a counterfeit. The counterfeit builds life on the sand. The counterfeit looks an awful lot like the real thing, but it's not. Those of you that like Oakley sunglasses, you remember this from last week? Folkleys are not Oakleys. They may be cheaper. They may look similar, but they're not Oakleys. Pleather is not leather. It's not the real thing. It looks awfully close. It's not the real thing. That's what Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. There is a counterfeit and there is a real, real thing. And the real thing is built upon the rock. The real way to live our lives is to build our lives on Jesus. Remember this whole year we're thinking about what life with Jesus is like, right? So we're going through the Sermon on the Mount, be thinking about it in this way if you want to. Life with Jesus means that we build the entirety of our lives on him. 
We should build the entirety of our lives on him and connect everything, thought, word, deed, to him. Not thinking he's just over here and now I get on with this. But connect everything about us to Jesus. All right. Maybe a little bit too long of a reading introduction, but hopefully you remember some of that stuff from last week. Listen to this. I'm about to read to you God's word. This is a portion of a letter from home. This comes from your heavenly father. Listen to this. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, let's pause right there, what I'm about to read to you came from the mouth of God in the flesh, Jesus. When I finish finish reading this, it's all downhill from there. These are the words of Jesus. This is what he said. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who persecute for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Lord, we gather here as your people today, and we want to acknowledge before you that we are all in process. That there are things that are going on in our lives, you are exposing certain things, You are uh, dismantling other things. You are taking other things away. You are adding to. You are blessing. You, You are doing all kinds of things in our lives. So we want to acknowledge that we gather here before you as people that are in process. And therefore, Lord, you know that we can get distracted. You know that we're confused about things that are going on. We are thankful about other things that are going on. But we are here together so that you can continue to deal with us. So Lord, have your way with us. Continue to pour out your grace into us. Continue to expose the self-centeredness that we might find life in your son Jesus. And Holy Spirit, all these things that we've said and what we have requested, you are the one that affects all of it. So please... Continue to work in us what's pleasing in your sight. For your glory, Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. You know, as a follower of Jesus, uh, maybe this applies to most of you. As a follower of Jesus, there are two primary questions that seem uh, pressed upon us all the time. And the two questions are this. What am I doing for God? And what do I want God to do for me? And it seems like the majority of popular Christian books are written to answer those questions. All the time, we have to think about what am I doing for God? And what do I really want from Him? And I want to suggest to you Then we go through the Sermon on the Mount and think about, in particular, the Beatitudes today that's often called these verses 1 through 10, that what we read in those verses 
is actually answering two really different questions. See, oftentimes those questions are pressed on us like, okay, so what are you doing for God and what do you want him to do for you? And God oftentimes takes a radically different approach. We're prone to be centered on self, and God is kind of interested in us focusing on him. So the questions that these verses are answering are actually this. And these are questions that we should actually think more about than the other two. They're this. What does God want for me? And what is he doing in me and in us? Does that make sense? Do you follow the difference there? In other words, as you leave here this week, think about what does God want for me? Not so much thinking about what I'm going to do for God, even though that's important. But to process everything in your life this week, everything in my life through the lens of what does God want for me and what is he actually doing in me? And even bigger, what's he doing in us? God answers that. And his answer to that question is this. God is building a cruciform community. That's what he's doing. Now, if you wonder what that is, let me tell you what it is. And then in the passage, I want to show it to you. This is what it means. When God is building a cruciform community, what he is doing is he is building individuals and he is building people together, the church. He is building a people that are shaped and formed by the cross. So what's God doing in your life? What's he doing in my life? What is he working into me? What's he working into us? He is making us, individuals and collectively, a people that are shaped and formed by the cross, by the work of Jesus and what Jesus has done. That's his answer. That's what a cruciform community is. Now let me show it to you in these verses. The first thing he does, and these are two big categories, is that he is working in us so that we know we are needy. Look at verses 3 and 4 and 5. Let's hit these quickly. Jesus says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. When Jesus says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, he's not talking about anything that has to do necessarily with financial status. He's talking about those who are poor in spirit. He's not talking about where do we stand financially at all. He's talking about spiritually. He's talking about in every one of us, in all of us, there is a sense in which eternity is within us. And there's a sense in which each, in each one of us, we are needy. Like deep down, our soul is needy. God wants a people who know deep down and who know on the surface that we don't have what it takes. That we don't have what it takes. We need help. Many years ago, there was an article written in a, in a magazine. You've probably heard this illustration before. It's really poignant and like applicable all the time. The newspaper decided to ask several authors the following question. What is wrong with the world? And sent that question to authors so that authors would respond and, and therefore columns would be written in this paper. And one of the authors responded in this way. What's wrong with the world? 
One of the authors said, I am. How would you answer that question? What's wrong with the world? My guess is all of us could come up with whatever the hot topics are in the front of our head, whatever we're really passionate about, right? We hear all kinds of answers to that question all the time. And God's saying, you know, I really think what I'm doing is I'm forming a people who are poor in spirit. So when they look at the world, what they think is, what's wrong? I'm, I'm a problem. I'm the problem. Do you realize how that can transform everything in your life? You know what the problem with my marriage is? It's not Jenny. It's me. You know what the problem at work is? It's me. You know what my problem in my neighborhood is? It's me. Do you see that? Do you feel that? It's radically different. Jesus says not only are they poor in spirit, they're actually those who mourn. You see, when the Bible talks about mourning, it's talking about a people that know that there are problems that are way beyond their ability to fix. Think back to times in your life in which you have mourned. I mentioned to you a couple of year, a weeks ago, not years ago, a couple of weeks ago, sitting at my grandmother's grave. Remember this? Just sitting there weeping. I was mourning. There was something beyond my ability to fix. A people that mourn have a constant sense that we are powerless over our problems. It's not as though we think that we can fix everything. And that's hard for some of us to say because some of us are by nature fixers. We want to fix stuff. And there are some things that we can fix. Just not a lot. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, those that have a sense that they are powerless, their problems. What he's getting at there is this, we're all sinners. And what it means to be a sinner is that we're constantly trying to be God. You know, in our lives when we live, we're constantly justifying what we think is right and wrong. We're constantly living our lives trying to be God, meaning not only are we defining what's right and wrong for ourselves, it's that we actually are trying to define purpose and hope and, and comfort apart from God. That's sin. Anytime we are trying to be God and live as if we can define reality, we are sinning. And this is comprehensive. It's not just my sin. It's not just me. It's brokenness all the way down. That we have a sense when we look at the world that there are things that are just wrong, that we can't collectively fix. And that even extends to the good things that we think we do. That even that is tainted with sin. You see, let's bring the counterfeit back in. Jesus is talking about counterfeit. At the end, he's trying to get us to think about that. You see, a counterfeit is real. A counterfeit might acknowledge that sin is real, Someone who's counterfeit might even be sorry for that. But counterfeit keeps coming back to this. But look at all the good that I've done. Jesus is saying those that are poor in spirit and those that mourn not only acknowledge that they have done wrong, but they are willing to admit for all the things that they've done right for wrong reasons. That there's a comprehensive sense that they can't, that we can't fix things. One man summarized the message of Jesus in this way. Every other religion says 
that all of our problems are outside of me. And the way to fix my problem is in here. And the message of Jesus is actually all of my problems are in here. And the solution to my problems is found outside of me. That's what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about a people who know and who are persuaded and who live as if they are a problem and are constantly expecting God to act and God to change so that our lives then are about faith, you see? And then Jesus says, blessed are those who are meek. Meekness is not weakness, okay? Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is not self-pity. Someone who is meek is someone who is fundamentally committed to being free from self-absorption. A meek person is not a narcissist. A narcissist is someone who is absolutely committed to being self-absorbed. A meek person is committed to being free from being self-absorbed. A meek person sees themselves as they truly are. A meek person is constantly trying to see themselves for who they truly are before God, before others, and they act like it. It's not just something they sign off on on paper. But they genuinely try to live as they truly are before God and before others, which means they use whatever gifts they have for other people. It means that we use whatever we have for others. It means that we're not asking for special treatment. A meek person is one that serves the good of others. Now, just for a moment, just going through these first three, you realize how counterintuitive this is? Like maybe you've heard explanations of these words before. Great. I hope it's reviewed to some extent. But do you realize how counterintuitive this message is? Because the message that we hear all the time and the message that we often prefer is this. Believe in yourself. We are told everywhere, take control of everything. We are told that all the time. We are told all the time, you are somebody. You can do anything you want. You're basically good. You can transform the world. You can do whatever you want. We can even visit counselors. Maybe you've done this. I have before. I have visited counselors, and perhaps you have as well, who have said this. They tell me and have told me how I can be more self-absorbed. And how I can fix everything if everybody should, can just get on board with what I need. All the time, that's the message we hear. All the time, I own me. I call the shots. My truth. And let me tell you, that whole message is death. It's death. You ever tried to really make yourself happy all the time? Yeah, impossible. It is a weight that none of us can carry. You ever truly tried to transform the world before? Just keep trying. You will burn out. We cannot do it. We can't even create our own truth and live by it. We have to constantly lower our standards and lower our expectations. The message is death. And when you mix that with some type of sprinkling in a little bit of Christianity, it's counterfeit. It's the house that's built on the sand. And you know what it produces? 
here's what it produces. When you mix that message of self with a little bit of some kind of Christianese language or jargon or something, what that produces is people that won't submit. It produces people that won't build relationships. It produces people that, want to, that will not think of others as better than themselves. It produces a people that can't admit that they're wrong and certainly don't want to love their enemies. It's really hard to love your enemy if you're not poor in spirit and if you don't realize that things, so many things are beyond us, isn't it? You see, if we don't think we're part of the problem, then we can always blame someone else. No, I don't like them. They're the problem with the world, right? That message of self and self-absorption and live for yourself is death. It's a world in which everybody has to try to live based on how you define love and how I define love. It is impossible. It's chaos. Jesus is building a kingdom of people that are needy. And here's the second thing. He's giving us a new way to live. Look at verse 7 through 10. He's talking about mercy and pure in heart and, and, and those that are peacemakers. Look at these verses, 7 through 10. Look at this quickly. Merciful. God is creating a community. He's working this into us in which we are a merciful people. It's simple. This is a simple thing. I'm not saying it's easy to do. Matter of fact, I'd say it's impossible. But this is what God is working into us. People that are merciful are a people who move toward other people with the intention, with the motive to help. With the motive to help relieve suffering or pain. That's what it means to be merciful, to move toward people because we care. That's it. Not because we can fix. Not because we can solve everything. But because we are drawn to people. Pure. What Jesus means when he says this is that he's working into people so that others don't have to worry about being deceived. So that others don't worry about whether or not there's a disguise on. Someone who's pure, someone who lives a pure life is someone who is truly free and genuine. It's not someone who's constantly putting up a disguise or who is fake, but someone who is truthful and sincere. Not innocent, but genuine. And a peacemaker, this means that we are a people that would pursue health and wholeness. The totality of the person, wholeness. It's a concept that rules our hearts. We all are longing for the day as followers of Christ in which everything will be made new, in which there will be complete peace, shalom, wholeness. Everything will be made right. And God is making a community of people who care about that now, who are committed, who are committed to complete restoration. Now, to illustrate this, this is the only way I could think of as I was praying through it this week, was this phrase, and I'll try to, I'll try to uh, give you this phrase and then tell you about it. If, if we want to, as individuals and people, be a people that are merciful, pure, and peacemakers, this is a phrase that connects with that in my mind, at least. Put that on my account. Put that on my account. 
Let me try to illustrate this for you. There's a story in the Bible about an employee that stole from his boss and then ran away. And in running away, he ran to a big city because he probably thought that he was going to be able to fit into the crowd and disappear. But what, had, what happened was, is he ran into this guy named Paul. And he was told the message of Jesus, and he was a radically transformed human being. Whole life was changed. And so the Apostle Paul thought to himself, you know what? I'll write back to your boss, and I'll tell him that you have changed. And so he did. That's where we get this little postcard in the New Testament called Philemon, right before the book of Hebrews. And Paul tells Paul tells Philemon, look, this guy stole from you. He did. He came to Rome, run away. Well, guess what? He ran into me. And in running to me, he ran into the message of Jesus. And he's changed. So whatever he owes you, whatever he stole, Paul uses these words. Put that on my account. Put that on my account. Beloved, think about that. Think about how much mercy is in that phrase. Think about how much purity is in that phrase. Think about the, the level of peacemaking that's in that phrase. Put that on my account. And if we want to live this out, we need to get more and more familiar with living out that phrase, put it on my account. You realize how much you do this? As a parent... I can't work this out completely in every way, but I hope, I want you to see this. Parents, do you realize how much you do this? Your kids wake up in the middle of the night, and you hadn't slept in a long time, and you're weary, and they come to you and they're all sick. Do you know what you're doing when you care for them? You're saying, put that on my account. You are willing to stay up, and you are willing to be exhausted. And you don't punish your children the next day because they wake up that way. You try with everything that's in you to continue to love them, even if you're exhausted. And yes, that means that you get upset. And yes, that means you lose your temper at times. But you have said from the time that your children were really young, put that on my account. When you go to the doctor, you don't say, well, Owen, Dabney, and Bergen, you got to pay for your own doctor's appointment today. What do you say? Oh, yeah, they're on mine. Put that on me. Right? When they get a little older and they start driving and they wreck your car, put that on my account. Now, there can still be consequences, right? You can still talk to them about wisdom, right? You can still ask them to pay for some things if you want to, right? But fundamentally, what you say is, put that on my account. At your jobs, you work with people that are either your equals or they uh, report to you or you report to people that are above you. How many times have you messed up? How many times have people that you work with messed up and it messed you up because they messed up and you just simply had to say, put that on my account. How many times do you do this? I hope you can look at your life and think, well, yeah, I've done that a few times. Some of you might realize you did a few times in the last few days. To be a people that are committed to mercy and purity and making peace, we are supposed to be a people who are constantly saying, 
put that on my account. Not because it makes us like the Apostle Paul, because it makes us like Jesus. Isn't this what Jesus has done for you? It's what he's done for me. How many times a day does he say, put that on my account? How many times a day does he plead to my Father in heaven and say, no, it's my blood that covers Dave today? How many times? If he ever lives to pray for me, I guarantee you one of the things he's praying for is all the times that I sin. And what he's saying is, put it on my account, Father. I'm with you because I paid for him. Jesus does this for us every day. And that's the only reason why we would ever want to turn around to other people and, and have the power to relate to other people with a disposition of, put that on my account. Beloved, this is what God is working into me and to you and to us. That we are willing to be patient and merciful and seek peace. And if you have never, ever had someone who is willing to take your wrongdoings and say, put that on my account, then let me tell you, Jesus has done that. And what he has done can cover anything that you have done. And what he has done covers everything that you have done. Put that on my account. That's what Jesus says. That's what he did. And I want you to realize that the entire teaching of Jesus and what we've looked at in these verses is all anchored in verse 6. As I read one of the scholars this week, a lot of them were debating about, well, how many Beatitudes are there? Seven or eight? And I read one guy who was like, oh, well, look at how this is written. You got three, and then you got three, and in the middle you got this idea that anchors everything together. And I was like, ding, that is exactly right. Look at verse 6. Blessed are those who what? Hunger and thirst for what? Righteousness. For they will be satisfied. So if you've heard anything that I've been talking about in terms of a checklist, come on back in because we're about to guarantee you that this is no checklist. Hunger and thirst. Do you know how much we hunger and thirst every day? My guess is that there are several of you right now that are hungering and thirsting at this moment. When is he going to stop so we can go eat? I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. Do you know what it's like to go without eating and drinking for a long period of time? If you've ever done that, you know that it doesn't take too long until the sense of the urge to eat and drink is overwhelming. Jesus is saying that our souls have a hunger and a thirst to them. And all of us are hungering and thirsting from our soul. The body and our physical body mirrors what's going on in our soul. And as we hunger and thirst in body, our soul hungers and thirsts, except our soul hungers and thirsts for righteousness. Just as our body hungers and thirsts for food and drink. What is righteousness? Well, all of us are looking to be righteous all the time. Righteousness is this sense of to be right. I'm not talking about right versus wrong. I'm talking about acceptance. I'm talking about deep down approved, 
deep down accepted. Our souls all want to be deep down accepted and deep down approved. Let me tell you where this has been evident in my life lately. Going back, we'll say a month. This is where I've been looking for righteousness, meaning approval, meaning I need to know something. We've been waiting for what the doctors would tell us about Dabney's back. Been waiting to hear. Been waiting to know if this is approved or denied, if I'm comforted or not. There are guys who have been working on our house for a few weeks. Perhaps you've seen that. I'm waiting to hear how bad is it. And some of it's been bad. We, we tried to talk to our insurance company to see if they would cover some of the house stuff because it predated us and it was work that wasn't properly done. I wanted to hear the verdict. I wanted some righteousness there. I wanted to find comfort there and find approval there. What's wrong with my dad? My dad's having physical problems, and I'm waiting to hear what's going on with him. You might remember he had a heart transplant more than 12 years ago. I'm constantly thinking about how he's doing. Will Jenny like what I did, what we did for her birthday? That was in May. You can ask her if you want to. But I was nervous about that. I wanted some type of approval. Maybe for you it's looked like the verdict on your yearly review. Maybe for some of you it's looked like I'm going on a date with somebody that I really want to like me. And I want to know if they approve of me. I want to know if they accept me. When I was, had a responsibility of hiring a national director and the, the responsibility of that, I wanted to know if we made the right decision, and I still don't know. Still looking for that approval. Still looking for that declaration of, yes, this is right. You see, we're always waiting on a verdict. By the way, health insurance, I mean, uh, insurance for our house, no. Denied. Wasn't accepted there. We are always looking for approval and for acceptance, for righteousness. And if we find that, then guess what? We find fulfillment. We find joy. We find hope. And you see, because of sin, we're always looking for righteousness from someone other than God. And this righteousness and this acceptance is what Jesus has done for us. What he did through his death and his resurrection is our righteousness. What he has done makes us right with God. It gives us the acceptance that we can't find anywhere else. It's all him. And what that means is this, that Jesus is the source of our blessing and he is the promise of everything that we read. Look back quickly here through 1 through 10, 3 and following. What does it say about the poor in spirit? They'll what? Inherit the kingdom of heaven, right? Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What about those who mourn? There will be comforted. What about those who are meek? Oh, well, they're going to inherit the earth. What about those who are merciful? They will continue to receive mercy. What about those who are pure? Oh, they're going to see God. What about those who are peacemakers? They're going to be children of God. What about those who are even willing to die for all this stuff? Those are going to be persecuted. 
They're going to inherit the kingdom. You see, those are all Jesus. Do you know the kingdom that he's bringing us into is his, not ours? The comfort that we can find is in him. The righteousness that we have in him makes us satisfied. The mercy that we extend to others is because he has given us mercy. Every single one of those, those promises, explain to us what Christ has done. Beloved, know that your God is with you this week. That what I'm about to tell you, the promises of God have all been bought by the blood of Jesus. What I'm telling you is a reality because our Christ is alive. So look up and receive God's blessing. It carries us. It's our hope. The Lord your God is going to bless you. And he is also going to keep you. This week his smile is upon you and he will be gracious to you. Today, tomorrow, and forever, his presence will be with you. And one day, he will make everything whole. It's true, because our Christ is alive. Amen. Go in peace.